All right, 1 Corinthians 14. Again, I want to preface this by saying not everyone who is, oh yes, thank you. Not everyone who is a believer or uh, thinks that the spirit, these temporary gifts, these five temporary gifts, not everyone who believes that they are still for today, that believe that they are active or should be active in the church today, not all of them are, are unbelievers or practice the excesses or the, um, I don't know how to describe it, but you understand what I'm saying. There are believers, genuine, sincere believers, who believe that these temporary gifts are still active today and will uh, try to practice the gift of tongues, will try to exercise uh, the gifts of miracles and healing. Uh, some of them are caught up in churches and ministries that are, unfortunately, they are teaching a false gospel, a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. There are some who are caught up in this that are genuine believers, but they're just maybe misguided. Uh, there are good, godly Christian people uh, that we met that you might know. I've, again, I've uh, known someone for years who has been very uh, outspoken about her belief in the gift of tongues and says that she practices it on a regular basis. But I, I, don't, I don't agree with her, but I, I do believe that she is a, a genuine born-again Christian. I don't doubt her salvation, but I, I want to be careful that I don't lump everybody into the same health, wealth, and prosperity, false gospel lump. Because there are some good, genuine believers who believe in the temporary gifts and that they are in practice today. I can think of a very popular national speaker who we would probably recognize his name. And he believes that the gift of tongues can be practiced in certain circumstances in the church and people can receive new divine revelation. And he is a very popular national speaker, has sold lots of books, and he would be recognized by probably many of us if I were to say his name. I disagree with him on that point, and it's no wonder then that he hangs out with the charismatics in some of his preaching and conferences that he goes to. So, and with all that being said, uh, I want there to be a, a, a proper understanding of these temporary gifts and of spiritual gifts in general. So 1 Corinthians 14, we've been in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and I should have marked here in my Bible before I step down, 1 Corinthians 14. But we know that Paul has addressed spiritual gifts in chapter 12. He sandwiches chapters 12 and 14 with the chapter on love. So if I can, without being disrespectful to the word of God in any way, if chapter 12 is one slice of bread and chapter 14 is another slice of bread, the meat in the middle is the chapter on love. Again, by the inspiration of God, the preservation of his word, and understanding the abuses of the Corinthian church when it came to spiritual gifts, is there any wonder that chapter 13 is where it is, because the spiritual gifts, oftentimes, as we have seen, and as we look at these temporary gifts, and we look in detail at the gift of tongues, 
We too often see spiritual gifts not being exercised in love, in edification of the brothers and sisters in Christ, unity of the church, the work of the ministry. Too many times spiritual gifts become about self and about likes and follows and ticket sales and marketing and showing off and becoming a celebrity and being able to outdo the other people who claim similar gifts. So 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us of the essence of, of love. And we see very clearly even in 1 Corinthians 13, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Some people have taken verse 1. And, and have said, well, see, there's an angelic language out there. There's a celestial language out there. And if we're spiritual enough and we have enough of the gift of tongues and we work hard enough at it and we learn all the techniques, then we can also speak in an angelic language, a celestial language. Is that what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1? He's saying, though, he says, if, if there were some angelic language that we could attain, that we could speak, it would not be for my profit, for my showing off, for me to be able to declare I'm more spiritual, because he said, if I don't exercise that in love, then it is like a sounding brass, a gong, that noise that our kids make when they're playing with toys in the other room and banging them on the floor and smashing things up against <laughs> other things, right? It's like, it's a clinking noise. It's a uh, tinkling, uh, how does he say it, a, a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And uh, a cymbal can be played very well. If you've ever been in an orchestra or heard an orchestra, a cymbal can be, they can be played very well. Or if they're on a stand, they can be played well in rhythm and appropriately. But if they're just bang, 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 what, what profit is there? So he is making it clear that if there were to be an angelic or a celestial language, if we could speak in that kind of language, it would still need to be exercised in love. So 1 Corinthians 14, what does he say? In verse 1, follow after what? He doesn't say follow after likes and follows and all the subscribers to your YouTube channel. He says follow after what? Charity, love. The King James translators use the word charity for love because they were trying to express the fact that love is an action. It's a choice that results in action. Love, yes, has emotion. But all kinds of songs out there, there's even a song, I believe, that's been popular in years past that describes in the song that love is nothing more than a feeling. What nonsense is that? If love is just a feeling, no wonder we can fall in love and fall out of love. And if we base everything in our life about how we feel, which is where our sensual culture is at, so to the point that now we have a male swimmer who thinks that he is a girl and he is confronted about the fact that he is winning awards that belong to girls and he's taking a spot on a girls swim team he says 
It's about my feelings. He came right out and said that in the interview. I heard him say it. It's about my feelings. He basically said, fooey with all you girls, fooey with all you women. If I want to be a girl and it's the way I feel, then that's what should rule. That's how we should make the rules. Because I feel like being a girl and it's not about them, it's about how I feel. Is that not narcissistic and selfish? But we see in 1 Corinthians 14, even spiritual gifts, even the most showy gifts, the most public gifts, are to be exercised in love, charity, as an action of love, of edifying, of unifying and building up. Follow after charity, and he says, desire spiritual gifts. Now, in interpreting verse 1, there is some debates among commentators. Is he saying desire spiritual gifts in the sense of we should want to gain more spiritual gifts or gain the most public or the most showy gifts? I tend to believe in the interpretation of verse number 1 that Paul is saying you desire spiritual gifts. Okay, follow after charity, and yes, you desire spiritual gifts, but what does he say in, at the end of verse number one? But rather that ye prophesy. Okay, so what is, what is Paul saying? It's not about showing off our gifts. It's not about having people say, oh, look at her, look at him. Look at how gifted they are. We tend to do that. We, we have that tendency because that's just the way we are. Human nature does that. But what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that our giftedness, whatever it is, as much as we might desire certain gifts that maybe God has blessed us with, maybe he hasn't. As we seek out, as we desire to know and understand our giftedness, what is he saying? He's saying that our giftedness should be about the instruction, the giving forth of God's word for the building up of the saints, for the sharing of the gospel with others. He's saying prophecy, to prophesy, the giving of God's word, the, in, the delivering of God's word, the delivering of the truth. So as he gets in the 1 Corinthians 14, he is going to emphasize, not babble, not having some gift of tongues or interpretation. He's not going to emphasize that as much as he's going to emphasize the necessity of the church being instructed in the word of God. But what is the tendency? The tendency is to have an experience because we focus so much on the external. We have a hard time walking by faith and not by sight. We want the visual. We want to walk by sight. Now, is there an element to our faith, as Hebrews 11 talks about, that has substance, that has evidence? Sure. Are there not historical Events recorded in scripture where we can visibly see God at work. Yes. Can we not give evidence, as I've mentioned in a previous message even recently, are there not Ebenezer stones 
memorials where we have seen God do a work? Sure. I'm not denying that. We have seen the evidence of God's work. But what do we want to do for our spirituality? What's the temptation? I had an experience. I came and I had this experience at the front of the auditorium or up on a platform. Or in my devotions, I spoke in a celestial language. I had the liquid love, the anointing of the Holy Spirit come over me, and now I have reached a higher stage of spirituality. What's the temptation? We want to walk by sights. We want experience. We want a sugar stick every Sunday so that we can get a sugar high. We want a pill from the cabinet that we can pull out and we can become whatever spiritual quality, fruit of the Spirit that we want. We want it easy. We want to microwave our Christianity. I wish, poor Chandler, since he had two wisdom teeth removed on Tuesday morning, he's been living on ice cream and mashed potatoes and mac and cheese and I forget what all, all those puddings. I wish that Christianity could be as simple as a 30-second or a three-minute microwave dish. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just make it that way? Going through a trial in my life, okay, let's see here. Let me flip through the Word of God. Let me get the recipe and drop it in the microwave, 30 seconds, got through that trial. Oh, I need some patience for today. Things are really rough. Boy, I wish I could put that three-minute mac and cheese in the microwave, microwave it, and I could have patience. Don't we wish it were that easy? But that's what we are so conditioned to think. We are so conditioned because everything is about the next greatest convenience. There is nothing wrong with that to a certain point. But I have hundreds of conveniences in my life. And yet, how come I still find myself so busy? I thought all these conveniences would make it so I, I can just sit back and relax, right? It doesn't work that way, does it? It seems like sometimes the more conveniences we get... Oh, now I can carry a data machine 24-7. And in some ways, there are times where I want to chuck this thing. <laughs> I don't, don't take that the wrong way, please. If you feel like you need to call me or text me, please do. I try to email you back. I try to at least text you back. I had to tell somebody the other day. I said, I'm sorry, I'm away from my computer. I'll get back to you this evening. And then I have to remember to get back to them, right? <laughs> which I did, which I did. But um, um, you, you all are, are wonderful. But please, if you, if you need to, to reach me, uh, don't hesitate to do so. I appreciate uh, somebody the other day said, I'm really trying not to bombard you with links to all these different videos. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, appreci- I appreciate that. I, can't, I wish I could watch every, every video and every uh, thing that's out there. Uh, but I appreciate uh, their understanding of my time. Uh, at the same time, it was, a, it was a good video. It was worth, worth, worth viewing. But we want everything to be convenient. We don't want to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, do we? We want it to be easy, commercial-free, 30-second, 3-minute, fast food. Now, how good, if we had a regular diet of fast food, how good would our health be? Wouldn't be very good, would it? So... All that being said, let's look at spiritual gifts, and we'll go through a quick review here. Ah. Well, 
Not sure what's happened here. I think the battery's dying. Well, I'll go through this way. Uh-oh. Or my computer is dying. Wow. It's gotten really slow. Something's, something's up here. Well, anyway, we've been going through. I'll have to rush through this. Hopefully, it will eventually catch up there. We've been going through the terminology, the different words, referring to spiritual gifts, pneumatikos, the definition there uh, by MacArthur, divine enablements, divine enablements for ministry that the Holy Spirit gives in some measure to all believers that are, that are to be completely under his control and used for the building of the church to God's glory. And then the term charisma, if it comes up, things are really slow for some reason on my computer. I probably need to restart it. I'll have to do that later. And then we looked at when are they received? When are spiritual gifts received? Go ahead and answer somebody. At salvation. Now someone mentioned, I think it was last week, are there abilities or natural gifts that maybe God takes and enhances after we get saved? Sure. I believe that that's often the case. There are certain abilities that God has naturally given us, giftedness in some physical talent or mental uh, ability, and then when we get saved, God takes that and he enhances that, and then he, he makes that a, 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 there's a spiritual component to that now, that is for the edifying of others, for the work of the ministry, for growing the church, for evangelizing. Nat? I think it's the Apostle Paul when he mentioned that as much as, as hard as he persecuted the church, he, after he came to Christ, he pursued Christ just as purposefully as yes. personally persecuted. So, you know, yes. He, he took his education, he took his abilities, he took his passion, he took his zeal, and, in, and now it was being used for the Lord instead of for self-righteousness. Yeah, good point. We talked about the main passages. It looks like it's starting to catch up now. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. We also can refer to Ephesians 2. There are other places where gifts are referred to or referenced, but these are the four main passages. And then the purpose of gifts. We've spent time here already. Service, edification, ministry, evangelism. The different verses that refer to being members one of another. Same spirit for the profit of all. Equipping, edifying, unity, minister to one another. Again, this, is, this goes against the grain of our culture. It goes against our natural self. We're a selfish people as sinners by nature. And our culture is very selfish. Our culture makes love of self idolatry. It's just everywhere we go. And the celebrity culture, and again, I'm not all against social media. I use it often, I know, as an illustration. I'm not 100% against social media. But when you have government officials coming out like the U.S. Surgeon General and saying social media is bad for teenage girls, when there's talk about a loneliness epidemic and there are statistics coming out that are directly associated to social media and our ability to just stay home and never relate to anybody in a real, authentic, personal relationship. When we went through COVID lockdown and saw what happened when we disengaged from relationships, 
real personal relationships when we were doing everything by Zoom and Microsoft Teams and whatever else is out there, we found really quickly that we need each other and we are made to be relational people. But in the church especially, we should be modeling this. We should be exemplifying this. We should be the greatest example of love and unity and caring for one another as true believers. We talked about the temporary gift of apostle, spent some time on qualifications and why there are no more apostles today. And then we talked about the temporary gift, oops, and I went to the wrong spot. There we go, prophets and the exercise of the gift of prophecy, I believe today, is just in the pastor-teacher who proclaims, or the evangelist, who proclaims already revealed truth. And then there will be a third, I should say a fourth time. We talked about Moses, Elijah and Elisha, Christ and the apostles, and then the fourth time in Revelation, the two prophets, where we see the prophet doing signs and wonders. Uh, I'm not doing signs and wonders. The evangelists are not doing signs and wonders. Our missionary guest, he's not going to get up tonight and do signs and wonders. <laughs> so um, we're not exercising that aspect of the gift of prophecy today. Miracles. Again, I do not want to be misunderstood on this. I don't want there to be someone who walks out of here and says, well, Pastor Floyd doesn't believe that God does miracles anymore. No, I remember teaching a Bible class many years ago, and I had a student who was out of a church that very much believed in miracles and tongues and, and healings, and she argued with me up one side and down the other, and I was trying in my hardest to convince her. It's not that I don't believe in miracles. God is a God of miracles, yes, but he doesn't have, I don't believe, people today with supernatural ability flowing through them to lay hands on people, to hit them in the head, or whatever the technique might be, to see a 900-foot Jesus and claim divine revelation because they saw who was at Oral Roberts and saw the 900-foot Jesus, and then he made some other prophetic claim that turned out to be false, and he was one of the main people who brought the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel into mainstream um, the, the gift of miracles in that way and method, I don't believe is for today. God is still doing miracles. And there are good people who come into our lives, gifted people, surgeons, doctors, helpers, people who come into our lives who help us in tremendous ways, and we describe them as miracle workers, but they don't have a supernatural gift flowing through them to exercise through some technique. I don't believe that is the case today. Again, we only have seen in Scripture Moses, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, and then a future uh, exercise of that kind of gift with signs and wonders. So, miracles were signs for the verification of God's word and his representatives until the Bible was complete. And then we see the absence of miracles performed by a person after the apostles. You can even go to the, the records of the early church historians. And there is a clear absence. Uh, I didn't bring Gromacki's book, uh, Gromacki, on the modern use of the 
the gift of tongues. Uh, Gromacki has a very detailed account of church history. He quotes Augustine and Origen and all the different church historians. And there's a, there's a lack of historical evidence of these types of gifts continuing after the apostles. We talked about Hebrews 1. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spoke unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us. How? By his Son, who is the living word of God, and we have the written word of God. God has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him who hath called us to glory and virtue. And that glory and virtue of Jesus Christ is declared right here in the written word of God. But again, we want visual. We want an experience. We want something external. Did Jesus not deal with that with the unbelievers and the Jews who wanted a sign? They wanted a sign. And Jesus said, the sign that I'm going to give you is my death, burial, and resurrection. And he referred to Jonah as a type of Christ who went into the belly of that great fish three days and three nights. He said, that's the sign. He referred them to the cross. But we want all these externals. We want all these experiences. So we spent some time dealing with healing. Even Paul himself, by 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he couldn't even come up with some magic formula to heal himself. What did, what did Paul say about his thorn in the flesh? He prayed, yeah, he prayed passionately. Three times in particular, he very explicitly asked God to take this away. And God said, that suffering is for your good and for my glory. My grace is sufficient. And then we see he didn't heal Epaphroditus, Trophimus, Timothy. And by the end of the last living apostle, Apostle John, the, those kinds of signs and wonders uh, are gone. The Bible never teaches that good health is an indication of God's blessing. Rather, God teaches suffering as a way of increasing our trust in him and for spiritual cleansing. So then we get into some scriptural arguments. I'm going to go ahead and put four of them up here about tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Any qu comments or questions so far? Okay, so some scriptural arguments, and then we'll talk about uh, some historical arguments and a separation argument when it comes to why we believe the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues was temporary. First of all, 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 8. A must, a much, I should say, misunderstood verse. Someone read 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 8. Who will read that for us out loud? Nat, you've got it. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 8. Thank you. Okay, so we see in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, we see prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. Prophecies shall fail. But notice what it says about tongues. They shall cease. Different 
expression in the original language. So 1 Corinthians 13, 8, the phrase, they shall cease, different from shall fail, which is applied to prophecy and knowledge, specifically in verse 8, knowledge vanishes away, prophecies shall fail. Okay, those are the same phrase in the original language, but in the case of tongues, shall cease is a different expression in the original language. So we see here, when it says they shall cease, it literally means they shall end by themselves. Prophecies and knowledge have to have an external, I don't know how to say it, an external interruption, a cause, a direct line of demarcation, so to speak, where it is brought to an end. But tongues, it's a different phrase. Shall, shall cease, excuse me, shall end by themselves. They are going to, in a sense, run out of power. It's going to run out of its usefulness. Now, not the best illustration, but if you've ever had one of those little matchbox cars, one of those little cars that's a wind-up car, a wind-up, even a wind-up toy. I always thought they were really cool growing up before all this remote control stuff. You had those little cars, you could pull it back, and as you pulled it back, it wound itself up, and you could let go, and boom, that little car took off, right? But what happened? Eventually, however that works in the mechanisms, that wind-up toy will wind itself out we could talk about a rope being wound up. If you've ever had a garden hose on a wind-up, eventually it runs out. There's all kinds of illustrations. That's the idea of the gift of tongues. It had a purpose for a certain amount of time. There was only so much that that wind-up car could do. There was only so much garden hose or rope on that. So eventually, when its usefulness, when its purpose is fulfilled, what happens? It's done. It's over. That's the idea of they shall cease. It has a limited time of purpose and usefulness. I hope that, hope that makes sense. Whereas prophecy and knowledge have to be abolished by a direct act of God. So... We can see biblically, we'll also look at historically, and we'll also look at eventually from a separation viewpoint, how tongues, the evidence is that it has ceased. It has used up its time of purpose and what its usefulness is for. So in verse number 10 then, this is where some people debate. And it's a very... Uh, I don't know, debatable. You look at commentators. We, we, we talked about this a lot in seminary. Verse 9, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Verse 10, But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. What is the perfect? Okay. Word of God. What else have people said? 
Earl? Good. Right. Drew? Good. Okay. All right. So, verse number 10, but when that which is complete, perfect in the sense of complete, fulfilled, fully revealed. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. I lean toward either the Bible or the final glorification of ourselves in heaven. Okay? I believe that it's a safe interpretation to either say the Bible or that glorified state when we are all complete in Christ in the sense of our full realization of our salvation. Because you're right, Earl, that's a neuter term. So it's not referring to a person, but it could be referring to the Word of God. And I think there are good people who take that interpretation. And then there are good people who also interpret as the final glorified state when we are fully in the presence of God without sin, in the glorification of our salvation. Okay? So, let's look, at it, let's look at it again. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So, when does the gift of tongues cease? It ends in and of itself. Okay? We know that 1 Corinthians 14 will teach also, as we'll look at eventually, that it was assigned to unbelieving Israel. It had specific reasons and purposes for which have been fulfilled. So it's very safe to say that the gift of tongues ceased when the Bible was complete. The perfection in that sense of the complete revelation of God. Okay? But if we say then that it's the glorified state, we still have to use obviously other scriptures to indicate that the glorified state um, would be sometime in the future, so could the gift of tongues then still be in use today before we reach that glorified state? I've said a lot there, I hope that made sense, okay? But I think it's very safe to say that the perfect is the word of God, and a lot of good men will interpret this verse that way, but some will say it's the glorified state, which then we have to go to other scriptures to argue, which we will, we have to argue then, well, if the glorified state is in the future, yes, tongues is ceasing in and of itself, going away, it's used up its usefulness and its purpose, but how do we know that was before the glorified state? At what point before the glorified state does that then cease? Okay. Did I see another hand? Earl? <laughs> Go ahead. Correct. And so, like, who's the true Jew? The one right. who believes in Jesus or the Lord Church. Right. And then there was back in the day, we did. We went back to a lot of the believing Jews still went to the 
Correct. Correct. Right. Well, I've, I've, I'm not as familiar with that interpretation, that it ended as the complete time being when the church, in a sense, launched, Acts 2. I've not, I'm not as familiar with that because people will say, well, then why is it still used in Acts 10 and Acts 19? Why do we still see the gift of tongues? And then the Corinthian church is obviously practicing some form of it, and it has to be regulated. But that's an interesting, an interesting thought. The... The, the point is that tongues uses up its purpose and its, its usefulness, and that is indicated scripturally, as we'll look at some other arguments. It's also indicated historically, and we can even talk about the separation argument, as we'll get to eventually, which means that what has become really sort of a modern phenomenon of the gift of tongues in the 20th century. A lot of the use of the gift of tongues throughout church history has been from isolated groups, sometimes very cultic groups, not always. And there have been some religious, some good people, religious people, who have exercised some form of the gift of tongues throughout church history. But more or less, it took a very, very back seat, kind of just among isolated groups until the 20th century. And then there was Azusa Street, I think for three years, and out of that came a lot of different things that we would say, huh, doesn't seem to be very scriptural. So if the Holy Spirit was involved in that, then how come out of that came these wrong views of God and theology and salvation and interpretation of scriptures and various other false teachers and cults that kind of spun off of the Azusa Street revival? Not that everybody who came out of that was an unregenerate false teacher, okay? But it spun off a lot of wrong groups and a lot lot of wrong teaching, okay? So that's a lot for that one verse. We're almost out of time, but there's three other points I'll just basically have to read for right now, and then we'll dive in further. So the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 8, if we use the interpretation that the perfect, the complete is the word of God, that's a very strong argument, though some would argue for the glorified state or the start of the church, okay? So then we also have other places that we can, or other scriptural arguments. Number two, the exercise of the gift of tongues was done by a miraculous act of God without being sought after by the individual. Okay, think about that. Much of what is called the gift of tongues today is self-induced. Literally, and I could take, I, I wish I would have brought the book, but there have literally been studies done, and I, I, I wish I had the, the book in front of me with the two names who did the, the study, thorough research, 
and many, many, many times it is a it is a experience that is gendered from within. It's it's forced, even to the point that there are preachers saying, "I will teach you." how to exercise the gift of tongues. And you can take some sort of class or instruction on how to practice, how to get the gift. But we see in Scripture, it is God who brings it. It's not self-induced. It is a sign from God in specific ways in Scripture, in the book of Acts, where God says, I am going to show to the Jews that the Gentiles are also receiving the Holy Spirit. They also are to be included in the church. We see it with the, John, with the followers of John the Baptist. There's that transition group. They speak in tongues as a sign to the Jews, to believers. This group is now included in the church. Cornelius, a Gentile, clearly... Peter had to come to the, 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 the point where he realized, as he saw Cornelius and his group speak in tongues, that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. And Peter had to go back and report to the church at Jerusalem. And he said, I saw them speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit was poured out on them, just like it was on the Jews in Acts chapter number 2. It was a sign that the Holy Spirit is for all believers, the church. We don't need that sign today because we have the word of God. We have the completed revelation of God's word. All right, that's as far as we're going to be able to get today. Final comments or questions? All right, I know we're, we're wading into some deep water. We're kind of thick in the weeds, the cattails. If you were like me walking the dog the other day, I went out into the woods behind the house. And I found myself parting branches (laughs) and getting myself filthy dirty. But sometimes we feel like that in order to come out into a a bright place. Um, Yes, Kelly and then Nat. Uh huh, yes. Sure. I would have to say yes. And well, the true, the true gift of tongues is the ability to speak in a language that I have not learned. And then there were, interpretation, there were people who were also gifted with interpretation so the whole group could be edified. So in Acts 2, there's actually the list of the dialects, the people groups that had come to Jerusalem who heard the apostles preach, Peter preach, in their own language. So all of a sudden now Peter has the gift of tongues and there are people there who obviously are interpreting or the interpretation is given individually to the individual to hear it in their language. So the gift of tongues is actually a language, but you never learned it. 
I would have to say that might be some miraculous work of God. I don't have any other explanation for it. Because obviously he wasn't trying to, without knowing your situation there of your friend, he wasn't trying to drum up some ecstatic experience. He went there with the purpose of preaching the gospel, and all of a sudden he's speaking in their language. It sounds like an act of God. But that would be the gift of tongues in that sense, because he never learned that language, but now he's speaking it. But in the Corinthian church, Paul says, well, if you're going to speak in another language, somebody needs to be there to interpret it for everybody so they can be edified. Nat? And that's, that's, that's the way we understand it. Peter was preaching, but everybody was hearing the, the message in their own language. And there's the list of dialects right there. And that's the gift of tongues in Acts 2. All right, we are out of time. Uh, we'd like to come back to this, Lord willing, next week. And so let's pray, and then we'll get ready for the service. Lord, thank you for our church family. Thank you that we can work through uh, the Word of God and discuss these things so that we can be better students of the word, more knowledgeable of the word, that we might grow in our knowledge of you. And Lord, be able to help others and to share the gospel and to be the salt and light that we should be. Bless now the service to follow, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming to Sunday School, and we'll look forward to the service here in about 15 minutes.